All right, well, as you begin making your way back to your seats, grab your Bibles and head on over to 1 Corinthians. Um, we're we're going to do what often feels like the impossible to do, or quite frankly, maybe just the unlikely. And we're going to try to tackle an entire chapter this morning. Now, it is only 13 verses, and so that is in our favor. But what it is that Paul begins to write about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is, is a completely different topic than the one that we have been looking at over the last several weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 was all about marriage, and it was him addressing the very different groups of people, kind of subsets of people that were within that local church that would have found themselves in different circumstances as it relates to marriage. He writes to those that are married and has instructions for them as husband and wife and gives them instruction as to what they are to do. He kind of, in, in, in almost like a drive-by fashion, writes to singles in verses 7, 8, and 9 of chapter 7, but then comes back later and gives much greater explanation as to what his instructions are. But along the way, he writes to those who uh, have found themselves uh, wondering if they should pursue a divorce, if somehow that would please the Lord. Maybe they have found themselves in a marriage where husband is believer and wife is not, or vice versa, that the gospel took root in one of their hearts and souls, but not the other. And so what do we do now? We're, we're in this relationship that, that it's, it's, it's unique in that sense, and he has instructions there for them. And last week we took a look at the instructions that Paul has to give to and writes to those who are not yet engaged or are engaged. He writes to the betrothed, and that word could be used to describe both of those camps, those who haven't found somebody to seriously date or become engaged with, or those who have, and he gives instructions there. But in 1 Corinthians 8, we, we completely switch gears. And it's no longer about the relationships between a husband and a wife. And however you might find yourself in that scenario or in that relationship, whether you are married or you're looking to be married or you just, you just desire to be married but you haven't found that individual yet, we, we, we kind of step away from that. And he begins to now address issues that the church would have struggled with and did struggle with collectively. The, the lens, if you will, zooms out a little bit further than it has the last several weeks as we've looked at chapter 7. And he has instructions to give to the entire church. And we can look in verse 1 of chapter 8 and begin to get our feet a little bit wet as to what the topic is that he's going to address. There he says, now concerning food offer to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Here he introduces the fact that we are transitioning to this, this topic that as 21st century Americans, we may not readily have ways to just kind of connect with right off the bat. And so we're going to have to do a little work to just try to understand what does food sacrifice to idols look like? What would it have looked like for them? How does that in principle connect to us? Because as God's word is timeless, 
He wrote it to the Corinthians through the Apostle Paul, but he certainly wrote it for us as well. And so there's principles here that we are to glean and apply, even though there may not be a temple in Waynesboro that food is being sacrificed to. There's some things there. I think we'll see how these principles come to life as we get into the text. But before we go any further, let's spend just some time in prayer and just invite God to come and meet with us and help us understand his word as we look at it. Would you join me? Oh, and God, to that end, we pray now and ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that, that our hearing wouldn't be dull, that our eyesight wouldn't be dim. God, we pray that you would help us to understand what it is that you have said through the Apostle Paul, how the Corinthian church would have heard it, how it would have been just what they have and would have needed, but how also this morning you thought of us. It's what we need. So God, we pray that you would help us to understand what it is that you have written, to see and understand the principle that comes out of the text, and to see and live out what it is that you call us to as brothers and sisters. So God, we pray for those things, and we pray that you would be active among us by your spirit this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back to the text, and let's just read verses 1 to 3 here together briefly. And then I want to just kind of think through temple worship in first century Corinth together. But let's go to verse 1. There he writes, now concerning, we've been talking about how those words signal for us that I'm changing topics and I'm going to be addressing questions that you had for me when you wrote to me. So now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now there's a few things happening there. And depending on your translation, you're going to see some of the statements in verses 1, 2, and 3 in quotations. The translation that I have has the phrase, all of us possess knowledge. In quotations, presumably, Paul is referencing something that they had written to him. You perhaps have the word knowledge right next to that at the end of chapter 1 being quoted as well. This knowledge puffs up. Paul's used the word puff before. It's been translated arrogant in other places in 1 Corinthians as we've gone along the way. And what he is 
doing, he's identifying part of the issue that is in question for this church. And it surrounds food offered to idols. One scholar that I was studying this past week gave this helpful summary, which I found to be very helpful. And it was this, Greeks and Romans were polytheistic people, and they were also polydemonistic people. So what do I mean by that? They believed there were many gods, and they believed that there were many evil spirits. Okay, so just think of Greek mythology. I mean, this is, this is the culture that we're, that we're studying. This is the Corinthian culture, Greek mythology, all of the different gods that would have been represented in Greek mythology. But it wasn't just gods. They also believed there was many evil spirits as well. And they actually believed that evil spirits would try and invade human beings by attaching themselves to food before it was eaten. And that the spirits could only be removed by the food being sacrificed to a god. So you can begin to understand maybe how these things interplayed with themselves a little bit. They, they didn't want to be possessed by evil spirits. And there was this belief that those evil spirits attached themselves in some form and somehow to the food that they were eating. And so to somehow rid the food they were eating of the evil spirits that wanted to invade them, that food had to be sacrificed to one of the many gods that they would have worshipped as well. And in the process of the sacrificing and offering of the food to the idols, the God would step in and he would remove the evil spirits and the food would become safe to consume. Well, you can imagine that this would have happened in a temple. And as we've looked at very briefly as we began this series, there are still the ruins of temples in ancient Corinth. The Temple of Apollos is one of the massive ones that you can still visit today and find the pillars of. And temple worship was central to the Corinthian life. And it's part of why what Paul has to say about the church collectively and believers individually being the temple of the Holy Spirit is such a radical thing to consider. Because the temple is where you went to go worship. The temple is where you went to somehow appease the God you didn't want to be or have angry with you. And Paul says, no, actually, the one true God dwells in you. You don't have to go and somehow appease him and divert his anger. He is for you. He is not against you because you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Temple worship was central to the Corinthian lifestyle. And there was three main contexts in which this food sacrifice to idols would have happened or occurred in. Paul's going to address two out of the three here in the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll actually get to the second one when we get to the end of chapter 10. But the first context would have been celebrations held in dining halls that would have been a part of these pagan temples. And so what would have happened, there would have been some type of animal or grain or whatever the food item may have been. It was not just, uh, it was not just animals, it kind of was everything that would have been consumed. It would have been sacrificed, the animal perhaps, 
coming live and having itself sacrificed there. There would have been certain parts of the animal placed on a, an altar that would have been burned, but then the rest of the animal would have been consumed, and there would have been these feasts that occurred, and they would have been in the temple structure itself. The grains or the breads or the other things that would have been eaten would have happened similarly, and this would have taken place there. There would have been a dinner party of sorts. The second context in where food could have been sacrificed or offered to idols would have been perhaps in the private homes of individuals. And this is what Paul's going to get at in chapter 10 towards the end, where it could have been you being invited over for dinner to somebody's house, and they have some type of idol there in their home, and there's some type of ritualistic offering given to that idol. As I was thinking through this this week, one of the first things that popped into my mind is when I've been in different Chinese restaurants, and somewhere there's a Buddha. I found myself going, okay, how does that affect and kind of pull into that? Well, we'll unpack that when we get to chapter 10 together. But that would have been a second context in which this would have happened. And the third, which Paul actually will talk about as well, would have been food sold in the marketplace. The meat market, if you will. And how that would have come about is this. You would have had the cow, for example, sacrificed in the temple, there would have been a a dinner celebration that night for the parts of the cow that were not placed on the altar and sacrificed as a burnt offering, but whatever was not eaten by those in attendance of the dinner party would have been taken to the meat market, and it would have just been sold as part of the marketplace that would have taken place there. So there's three kind of different ways that this could have come about. It's the first of those three that Paul's addressing specifically in chapter 8. He's specifically addressing the idea of a pagan dinner party taking place in a temple and how believers are to engage then in that. fascinating that as Paul writes, and we're going to unpack this and we're going to see it, that he's not addressing a sin issue outrightly. He's not saying, you consuming that food is sin, don't do it. That's not how he makes his argument. That's not the conclusion that he draws either. We're looking at disagreements between brothers and sisters within a local body that concern and deal with personal convictions. We'll see in the text that some believed you shouldn't do it. Some thought it was okay. How do they get along? How do they come together? How do they self-sacrifice to one another? See, he's dealing with how you and I and us treat one another in the realm of these personal convictions that we can have. And he does conclude in verses 11, 12, and 13 that if we don't do it right, we have sinned. 
but it's not because the action of eating itself was sinful. So let me try to give you some other examples that I just thought of over this past week that I think could kind of principally fit what Paul is identifying here, even though food is his specific example. What do you do about work on Sunday? There was a time in our culture where Sunday was called Sabbath day. And I mean, this is going back a few decades perhaps, but you didn't do certain things on a Sunday because it was the Sabbath day. And there would have been people that had just different disagreements about that. So just even how some of that worked itself out was, do you go out to eat after church on a Sunday? What do you do with this individual in your church believes that Sunday is the Sabbath day. It's not for going out to a restaurant, but this individual does believe that it's okay to go out to a restaurant on Sunday. How, how did they end up getting along? What do they do with one another? What about playing golf on a Sunday? All right, these are certain examples, actually the eating and the golfing on a Sunday are ones that I kind of experienced personally as a teenager, just in just that reality that there were people in our church that believed that you didn't go out to dinner on a Sunday, you, you wouldn't find yourself on a golf course on Sunday, Sunday was the day that you, you, you went to church and you went home and, and, and you just kind of found the lazy boy and you, you, you sat there and you rested and, and that's just what you did. And there were others that, no, we can, we can go to Applebee's and we can go play around a nine and we can do that. And, and, but how did they end up getting along? Here's another one. What do you do with those believers that would say, you know, it's okay to have a glass of wine or a beer. And we're not talking about drunkenness. We're talking about a glass of wine or a beer. And others that would say, no, we're not ever going to let the stuff touch our lips. What about dancing? That's another one that comes to mind as well. How do believers agree on dancing? Going to movie theaters, listening to secular music, listening to music with drums. I'll share an illustration for you here at the end, kind of how I had to process through some of this stuff within the last 10 years for a ministry team I was leading that dealt with music and drums. What do you do there? How about hymns or non-hymns sung on a Sunday morning? That might be one of the most current examples that the church, I'll say the, you know, the American church, finds itself having to wrestle with. This was an interesting example that came to mind, and this will be the last one I give you. Um, what about church on a Saturday night and not a Sunday morning? It's one I thought of here this morning. And, and what brought it to mind was some good friends of mine, probably seven or eight years ago now, because it was a couple years before we moved, um, they planted a church and did so beginning with a 7 p.m. Saturday night service. And it was interesting because there were some in the community of Warsaw that didn't actually think it was a church because they didn't meet on Sunday mornings. And they, they actually said that. And then when the church transitioned to a Sunday morning service, it's like they gained credibility and status and became a church overnight when they stopped meeting on Saturday nights and began meeting on Sunday mornings. And it's just personal convictions. 
And it's not wrong if somebody meets on a Saturday night. It's not wrong if you're a Sunday morning only person. You wouldn't be caught dead in the church on a Saturday night because we go on Sunday morning. Those other things aren't wrong. But when there is a disagreement over these preference issues, how do believers get along? How do they engage that? Well, those are the principles that we'll see play out. So let's just kind of break down here the chapter together. In verses 1 to 3, Paul's going to say that love is greater than knowledge. Love is greater than knowledge. Verses 4 to 8, he, he goes and makes the point that food is just food. Verses 9 to 12, he wraps it up and essentially says, eat in ways that are loving. And verse 13 gives us the conclusion that we'll need to pay attention to. But let's go back to verses 1 to 3. The idea here is that love is greater than knowledge. And there's two ways to approach these personal preference issues. There's two ways to think about it. And they can either puff up. And they can either cause one to, to grow in arrogance. Or they can build up. And he says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Presumably, the Corinthians had written to Paul, and I think the reason why that phrase is in quotations there in verse 1 is because they were saying, hey, look, uh, we all possess knowledge that there is only one God, and so this idea of food being sacrificed to idols, it's hogwash because there aren't any idols there's not any evil spirits that are trying to invade us through our food. And so we have this knowledge that gives us a freedom. And we're just we're going to eat and we're going to partake. And we'll do the dinner feast at the temples because the eating's really good there. The meat's really fresh. And Paul says, well, hang on, wait a minute. In your knowledge, you actually may become arrogant and love is greater than knowledge because love builds up. Some of you, I'm sure, could finish this statement or expression for me. I don't know who the first one to say it is but I, or was, but I've certainly heard it several times. People don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. It's verse 1 of chapter 8. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the idea here seems to be that loving God and surrendering myself to him is coupled with this not forgetting who he is and what he has done for me. And so as I interact with you, I do so from a place of grace and mercy and love first. And love seeks to build. If you got your Bibles open, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to look at verses 10 to 15 really briefly with you because the idea of building shows up there. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. Paul's saying there, look, you and I are builders. We thought about this together as we got to chapter 3, that when we come collectively together, that we're not just coming to be built up, we're coming to build up. So it is not wrong to come on a Sunday morning and gather with the Lord's people and, and ask the question, where, where will I be encouraged this week in my walk with Christ? Where will I be comforted this week in my sorrow? Where will I find somebody to rejoice this week with in my joy? But it's also appropriate and needing to be asked, who can I find to comfort this week? Who can I find to rejoice with this week? Who can I go and find to mourn with this week? We don't just come to be built and poured into, we also come to give and pour out. And there has to be both. But this idea of building as the responsibility of us as a gathering and as a body of people here in chapter 8 we then learn begins with love love builds up and in chapters 12 13 and 14 when we begin to break down spiritual gifts the whole point of spiritual gifts is for the building up of the body same exact word so you have a gift and that gift is to be used to build up the body of Christ. And as you seek to build in others, and they seek to build in you, we have this mutual giving and receiving relationship with one another. And that is how the Lord has ordered and, and constructed His body to be. And He's gifted us to do these things, but they begin with love. Go forward a few chapters to 1 Corinthians 13. I just want to show us really briefly in chapter 13 where the predominant, if not exclusive, issue is love. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... But I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In that passage, Paul cites five out of the eight spiritual gifts that he had just listed in chapter 12. And he does so using, using language that, that over-exaggerates his point. And the idea there is you can do all of this great stuff. But if the attitude of your heart is not inclined towards loving one another, it doesn't matter. You're not building up. Knowledge will puff up. Love will build up. And people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. In verses 1 to 3, we see that love is greater than knowledge. 
In verses 4 to 8, Paul works through and teases out the idea that, that you're right, this food is just food. And what, what, what kind of astounds me in this set of verses here is that he agrees theologically with the church. He says, yeah, you guys, you, you, you nailed the theology of your point. You guys have it dead on. You just were off in your application. Let's go to verse 4 and see how we get there. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, and that there is, quote, no God but one. He's agreeing with their theology here. You guys got it. You have the right knowledge. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Their theology here was spot on. What they're expressing and what Paul quotes them as having to express is vastly different, if not 180 degrees different than what is recorded in Acts 17 in his experience on Mars Hill, another Greek city, just not that far from the city of Corinth, where they were worshiping all sorts of gods there. And Paul steps in and he identifies that, hey, this, this altar here to the unknown God, let me tell you what his name is. Let me tell you who he is church in Corinth got it. They got it at least in their minds. They were maybe struggling to get it or live it out in their actions. But he says, yeah, your theology is solid here. He continues in verse 7, however, not all possess this Knowledge. What was the knowledge he's referring to that began as a, as a reference in verse 1 that he teases out in verses 4 to 8? It's that there's no God but the one true God. Idols have no real existence. But not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. His idea there is that food is just food. But we can see that theological knowledge does not automatically translate to interpersonal love. They had the right things up here. It hadn't perhaps affected their hearts and worked itself out through their hands. And in verse 7, Paul identifies that some in the church were unable to separate the past from the present because of their past. And I think there's something really significant for us to recognize there. Not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered 
to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. That, that, that somehow their past is unable to be separated from their present because of their past. Don't miss here that Paul identifies that person as the one whose conscience is being weak or is weak. There's significance there. He says, look, they don't fully understand this knowledge that is true, that idols are worthless, and that there is only one God, and that the food you eat, it, it, it's not, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't commend you to God. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt you if you don't eat it. The food's just food. You guys are right. But you have brothers and sisters in your midst whose consciences are weak, they're unable to separate the past from the present because of their past. And in verse 9, there's this transition that's made. And it's significant. And he says this, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And in verses 9 to 12, the idea is to eat in ways that are loving. Knowledge will puff up. Love will build up. You might be spot on in your theology, but if it hasn't penetrated your heart and worked itself out through your hands, you may be wounding the consciences of those who are weak. They may become defiled. Here's the big idea. It's not your fault, but it becomes your responsibility. So someone in this church is unable to separate their past from the present because they were somehow associated with the idol worship that was happening in the church in, or in, in the city of Corinth. And they were a part of the sacrifices. They were a part of that poly theistic, polydemonistic culture where their lives were consumed with appeasing the evil spirits or somehow appeasing the gods to take the evil spirits away from them. But then they meet Christ. And they can't separate the past from the present because of what the past had been and what it had represented for them. And they're the one with the weak conscience. But Paul gives no commands to the person with the weak conscience. All of his commands are to those who, quote-unquote, get it. And it may not be your fault that they are unable to understand in their mind that the meat's not really sacrificed to the idols, but it does become your responsibility because of how this body is supposed to work. may not be your fault that somebody says, Sunday's the day that I'm going to not go out to dinner or not play around a golf or not X, Y, and Z. It may not be your fault that they have that position, but it does become your responsibility. See, the issue, and this is kind of where we fall in, in and under the principle, it's not the specific activity that we're engaging in. It's not just related and limited to food. But he's saying you got to be really careful that 
what you do doesn't hurt others. So several years ago, I was a part of a ministry team that went down to Dry Hill, Kentucky. Dry Hill, Kentucky is in, I believe it's Hyden County, Kentucky. That county is the third poorest county in all of America. And Carrie grew up going to the Victory Mountain Grace Brethren Chapel as a student. Her dad would lead the youth group down and go down to trips. And when I interned at their church over in Willow Street, uh, I went on that trip and visited for the first time. And then as a youth pastor, took my youth group back a few times. And we went down there. And the pastor, who has now since retired, is a tremendous man. And if there is a if there's a harder place to work in our fellowship, I do not know of it. This man worked tirelessly and served tirelessly and loved tirelessly the people in his community. But he had some convictions about music. And they were specific convictions about music. You could not play anything that had a beat on two and four. Because that was the devil's rhythm. Everything had to be played on one and three. There could not be anything with drums or any sort of percussion element there. So as we went down there and as we were preparing, not only ourselves as leaders to do a vacation Bible school and lead in singing, also preparing the students we were taking, we had to have these conversations. We had to say, look, hey, guys, when we get down there, you need to know that the pastor there at the church, he, he has some really strong convictions about music, and we're, we're not going there to try to convince him otherwise. We're not going there to try to, to, to try to bring life to the church in the way that we might define life through a certain song or whatever. We're, we're going there to take the posture of servants. And you guys just need to know, he, he will not stand for any drums, so we're not going to play any CDs. And not a single CD got played through the whole week that we were there. Actually, we, we did live music on guitars, and that, that seemed to be okay. But that was how we had to approach this man's ministry and this opportunity of serving. And, and, and sure, we could have made theological arguments and said, well, didn't, didn't God also create the rhythm two and four, not just one and three? Did he not create all chords and melodic structures and all of yeah, I mean, we, we could have had that theological argument, but we would have just completely missed it. And so even though it wasn't our fault that there was a very specific style of music that was accepted and or not accepted, it did become our responsibility. And as a leader and as the students who went, we, we bore that responsibility of not offending that brother, his wife, those church members that would have been around. 
it's not even something we had to agree with. It's just something we had to defer to. It may not have been our fault, but it was our responsibility. Knowledge can puff up, but love will build up. And the focus becomes others, not me. And Paul says, take care in verse 9 that this right of yours, the right he's referring to is the right to eat whatever. And again, he's just acknowledging, you, you, guys, you guys have good theology. You can eat whatever meat you want. You're right. But be careful that it doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? That word encouraged, it's a play on words Paul's using there. It, it literally is the word built up. So he, he's saying this, I want you guys to love one another to where you're built up. But the person whose conscience is weak, they're going to be built up in the wrong way. They will be encouraged, built up. And if his conscience is weak, that person will be destroyed. And in verse 11 he says, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. And I want us to just just kind of pause there for a moment and understand and kind of shine the spotlight on verse 11 and the logic that Paul uses because it's the third time that he's used this logical argument. Two other times, the way the argument has come about is he has said something to the effect of, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. At least two times thus far in the book of 1 Corinthians, he has made that point. Jesus died for you. Jesus paid it all. All to him you owe. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor and glorify God in your body. But here he uses that same argument, but applies it to how we're to think of each other. And he says this, and so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. They've been brought with a price. Your actions matter to them. And he continues in verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. The focus becomes others, not just me. And it may not have been my fault they are unable to not eat food or certain foods or on certain days of the week, whatever it may be, whatever the details are, it does become my responsibility. And I think the idea here, just as we kind of work out how this applies specifically in practice is first we got to know one another we got to know and have these conversations together and then when we learn about one another we have to be real careful then what we do has to be from a position of love, 
and a desire to build. And in verse 13, Paul concludes what he's been communicating about how this love is to build. And quite frankly, this is the most difficult verse in the entire text. And he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. There's a rub there. Because Paul is saying, I'm willing to never eat meat again if it causes that person harm. And I read that and I go, well, wait a minute. What, what about eating meat when like they're not around? What if they don't know that you eat the meat? What if they're at their house and you're in your backyard and you cook up a burger? Is that wrong? What, what? He doesn't give wiggle room. He just makes this blanket statement. If food is going to make my brother stumble or my sister stumble, I will never do it again. And the point and the emphasis there, I think, is to remind us of this type of self-sacrificing love that actually does build. Or it is one that surrenders my rights for your benefit. So how does this apply specifically to us? You're going to have to work that one out with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of different ways, as we just even outlined in the very beginning, was, you know, eight or nine different ways that this kind of can hit principally in a lot of different areas in our lives. But he doesn't give wiggle room. He doesn't, he doesn't let himself or even the Corinthian church off the hook. If my eating meat causes them to stumble... I will never eat meat again. That is the self-sacrificing love that builds up that he is calling us to. It's the type of self-sacrificing love that Jesus came and lived with and loved with and taught his disciples to live with and love with. type of self-sacrificing love that we're called today to live with and love with. Let's pray. God, we pray that you'd help us to do that. There's a love expressed there. There's a conclusion expressed there. There's a surrendering of personal autonomy expressed there that I know at least in my own mind I find myself uncomfortable with. I find myself kind of chafing against because I'm selfish. And far too often The default position of me puts the priority on me. And here your word says, no, the priority is to be placed on them. And that we're to love one another with a love that builds up. 
We're not to come first and foremost with theological knowledge that will just only lead to arrogance and not a building up of the body, but to come with a a self-sacrificing love that builds, that says no to our rights, and does everything it can to strengthen and encourage our brothers and sisters. So God, to that end, help us. We desperately need your help. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.